Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. And thank you for choosing the Gradient Podcast. Now, we're back. Um, we, our election special came out. Thank you so much for supporting it. But now we're back with episode 11, and it's a big milestone for all of us. We have our first 10 episodes out, and we're, you know, moving on to double digits. Woot woot. Woot woot indeed, Mr. One-Third. We have now completed the Bill of Rights of the Gradient Podcast, our first 10 episodes, which leads us into today's topic. Today, we are going to be talking about esports, more specifically, the rise of esports. Um, after, you know, with quarantine, we have seen the esports scene uh, increase in viewership. Um, most people believe in, in part two, the quarantine that we've had to be dealing with for these past months. So um, we can go ahead and open the discussion there. Um, so other one-thirds of Gradient, uh, what is your experience with esports? Yes, thank you so much, one-third of Gradient. Um, I definitely think that esports is an interesting topic, you know, for a lot of teams, because like you said, we really did kind of, for a lot of people, it was, you know, their first interaction and first engagement with esports, you know, through quarantine. And for me specifically, I've definitely had an amplified, you know, engagement and experience with um, esports through quarantine. I know we all, you know, kind of do our different things, but I've personally been watching a whole lot of, you know, the Overwatch League. And I think it's interesting for me because it's like we talked about, you know, uh, in the Rise of Sports episode, we see that, you know, something that we may do, we may play basketball, we may play Overwatch, stuff like that. We get to see, you know, other people do it at this professional level, which I think is really interesting. I'd like to point out that the, the kinds of esports I tend to play are recognized as um, not real esports by the other two thirds of Gradient. I, I tend to play more on the EA realm of things. We have like your FIFA, your Madden, your 2K. But according to uh, our fellow Gradient podcast members, Evan and Jaded, those do not count as proper fake, esports. Fake, fake esports. I actually, well, I, I don't know. I don't know what transcript you have, but I definitely do think that, you know, Esports is esports. There's no way about it. You know, the old yeah, no me. The, <laughs> I think they're fake esports. I'm gonna stand by that. <laughs> yeah, like the old um, you know, Pokemon online tournaments, like stuff like that. You know, you know, Pong one v ones. That's technically esports. So I can't argue with that. Well, hold on. Pokemon's an esport, 100. I'm not. I'm not. We weren't talking about Pokemon. We're talking about, you know, your Fifas, your Maddens, your NBA 2Ks. And here's the thing about that. You can only watch, like, if you want to watch someone play Overwatch at a professional level, you can only watch Overwatch. But if you want to watch someone play basketball at a professional level, why would you watch NBA 2K? They, they have professional and ranked, like, Madden leagues and stuff and whatnot, where they yeah, have proper like, From a purely viewership standpoint, between watching actual football and watching digital Madden football, just to me at least, there seems like a pretty clear option as to which one would be more enjoyable for the viewer. Well, you have to realize that professional football isn't on 24-7, and it's not all new and engaging games. They play one, one each team plays one game a week for like a season in, in the year. And uh, on top of that, I think we're getting a little bit off track. Uh, I think I have properly refuted Evan's claim, and we have officially established that the Gradient Podcast believes that Madden is actually more of an esport than Overwatch, period, end of statement, let's move on. Anyways, so, you know, back to our discussion, um, I want to hear, you know, Armand, we talked about, you know, you, like, the 2K, the NBA, same thing, um, <laughs> the NFL, same stuff thing. like that, but Evan, like, what is your, you know, interactions and your experience with esports? 
Uh, you know, um, I've, I've participated in one esports tournament. It was a Madden tournament, um, a couple of years ago. Um... <laughs> so it is an esport. Evan, <laughs> the <laughs> master, <laughs> that is. <laughs> headmaster of the claims against esports, actually participated in one on the game of Madden. I too participated in the FIFA tournament, playing as the, the FIFA equivalent of Juventus. Um, I can't pronounce their name, they're Italian. Uh, they have Cristiano Ronaldo, and I got uh, beaten very badly. I, but you know, outside of like my, you know, my own participation in a tournament, I have been I've been a, a, a longtime viewer of 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 esports just in general. Um, you know, growing up, I was very into Pokemon. Still, am, still am. You know, just not nearly as much as I, I was. was. Too, yeah. yeah, back when I was a kid. I have some cards. Yeah, yeah, but I I. I uh, I definitely enjoy watching the uh, the like the um, the World Championships, the uh, the VGC World Championships. Um, you know, it just I mean, because I I it playing Pokemon, you know, like you learn about you know like you know fire, you know fire beats grass, grass beats water, water beats fire, you know all, all the type matchups. But then when you look at like the competitive aspect of it, there's a lot of uh, a lot of uh, you know like moves or abilities that, that you would deem useless as a little kid. You see in the competitive aspect are like integral to the game. Um, I don't want to get too too, too much into into specifics, because um, I, I could be here for hours talking about how uh, uh, you know like spikes is an integral ability to the, to the Pokemon game. But um, when you compare the casual uh, casual you know game session that you would have um, to the high level competitiveness that you see at, at a World Championships, like such as like the VGC World Championships, the you know just as like Pokemon as as a case study. There's definitely a huge difference between, you know, that casual and competitive side of things, and I think that ultra competitive, ultra technical, ultra analytical um, side of of the game is what draws, at least to me, what drew me into esports. Um, because I think you, you bring up a, a great point, specifically with Pokemon, uh, and specifically we've seen a lot of more um, sort of appeal to the the trading card version of the game itself as well, on top of the the more of the esport thing. Where people mm -hmm. actually like where the, the value of these cards have been skyrocketing specifically recently in light to a bunch of celebrities like collecting them and whatnot and i, I know it, it's it's drawn appeal to a lot of teens and youth this primarily me and me and my bgs 10 charizard are um there's no way you have a bgs 10 charizard of course i don't have a bgs 10 Charizard. bro i swear so as i was saying you all do bring up some pretty interesting points and i think this kind of leads us to the question of why does esports actually appeal to teens in the first place and you know for me personally and i think a lot of teens is you both talked about you know the level of play where you know you may be able to do something but to see someone do it it's the same reason why things like sports or professionals or experts in any field appeal to us because you get to understand it and see the way someone who is so incredibly good at it you know in this case playing an esports game does and thinks and i think that can be you know both interesting but also inspiring for you know teens and other people our age yeah i i think um in my opinion how i you know i think esports is so popular among teens because that's what we grew up with um you know all a lot of like the most popular esports games out there you know like your, your league of legends uh your your overwatch okay. uh uh valorant um you know like those ones those Fortnite. came out you know like uh, Fortnite, Fortnite's been on the decline recently. Does um, Fortnite have like credibility in the whole scheme of esports? Do people recognize Fortnite as like a 
like a, yes. a, a respectable game. Yes, however, it has been on a drastic decline. But we can get into that later. Um, but like what I was saying though, um, you know, like when we look at like like some of the most popular e like esport games out there, you know, games that are very popular in, in the esports scene. Oh, also like you know, like your your fighting games like Street Fighter, Mortal Kombat, Smash Bros. Those are games that you know we that we played, you know, as kids, and then you know when we, you know, become teenagers and we want to get more into that like competitive really real vigorous kind of gameplay esports is the, the direct line to that um and like you know for me right like smash bros is um it's an interesting place right now in in, in the esports scene um but you know ever since melee has been a it's, it's been a mainstay um at you know fighting in tournaments and whatnot and one you know smash bros really is one of like the uh the you know like the uh cornerstones of the esports scene and you know being able to play Smash Bros. on the Switch with my friends in, you know, like, uh, my presentation period, uh, you know, pre, pre-COVID. Um, but then also, you know, be able to go home and then watch, you know, Hungrybox or, like, Mewtwo King completely destroy people, um, you know, in Melee. Th there's a very interesting kind of, uh, almost like dich dichotomy where you know you have as I, said, as I said before you know like the casual aspect and then translating that into the competitive aspect i think because teens you know when we when we get into something um you know we, we really get into it esports is the really getting into it of gaming so we're you know we we take what we see from esports trying to you know adapt that into our own uh our own playing i know Jaden uh can can talk, can attest to this um <laughs> um but yeah that that you know that you know, as teens, we we really um, indulge ourselves in our hobbies, and esports is the natural conclusion of that. And I, yeah, like you said, I think what really does make esports appeal is you know it's the games, like the games that people play in esports are ubiquitous; they're everywhere. Like people are playing the games at a professional level, the same games that you know I can put into my Xbox right over there. Like we people are playing the games that the people and fans at home are watching, which is what makes it interesting. So as I was saying, the uh, the few uh, esports games that I do tend or I used to play a little bit when I was over summer and when I had the free time, um, I used to play some Smash Bros. I was never very good on it. It was on the it wasn't on the, the Switch as I feel like most people play on now. It was when the 3DS was mainstream, and I was a lot younger. Um, I also played uh, uh, a sufficient amount of Fortnite when that was very popularized, and it was the the whole the whole center of the esports field uh, on Twitch and Mixer and whatnot. And I, I can't say for myself that I was really an avid viewer of esports, but it, it, regardless, it was intriguing. The whole aspect of like these games being played on such an elite and high level and me being able to participate in a similar manner, obviously not to as good of skill capacity, but at least to like throw my hat and sort of be involved is something that I feel like is the big appeal in comparison to other hobbies like actual sports where you have such a defining cohort, whether it be like high school ball or college ball or the professional league where you can't really play on the same level as these sort of people. And I think that really is a great comparison, you know, between esports and conventional sports where you know with the rise of esports and you know their increase in popularity 
Every, what we see in esports is it's looking more and more like you know conventional sports. We see esports have you know players. We see esports you know they have organizations built around them. They play on stages. They play in you know big stadiums and stuff like that. Where you know the more and more we go into the future, the more and more esports starts to feel like you know something that is accepted as you know a real sport. And on top of that, I want to bring up the point that you do like. Uh, I know from my personal knowledge, I don't remember the specific uh, players exactly, but you have, a, a, I know of a couple NFL players who have dropped out of the league and who are decent in like the NFL and actually joined esports leagues and started founding teams and whatnot. And it, it really uh, sort of um, ignites that kind of how, like uh, sort of growing flame that esports is establishing itself in, in like the entirety of like gaming. Mm. I think... You know, one of the bigger appeals to teens that uh, esports has is the age of the players. When you look at esports, a lot of the players are, you know, very young. Like some even, um, you know, some organizations, you know, they have, uh, or some like esports scenes, they have a, uh, a um, age requirement. A, an, an, yeah, an age requirement on the players. Um, but, you know, there are some, those that don't, you see people who are, you know, 15, 16, 17, like, like high schoolers that are playing at the upper echelons of the competitive level and, you know, they're doing well. And I think because, you know, that because we see all of these teen players, you know, playing well as teens, we, you know, we start to think, I could do that. If I put in the hours, I could do that. And so, you know, we, we watch more, we learn more from what we see and we, you know, we think about, you know, can I do this? And then eventually, you know, some people can. And that's really, I think, what appeals a lot to teenagers is that sense of not only am I watching, I could be able to be one of those players in the near future. Uh, yeah. And that's really an important aspect of the esports scene. It really is that relatability to teens. But go ahead, Armand. Uh, I, I just have like a, a follow up on your statement. When you talk about how. Um, sort of the accessibility to how to put in the amount of hours to play on the level of some of like the younger uh, people who are avidly like well and successful in the esports industry. Do you think it's more a constructive use of time for everyone who who has like an appeal to esports to actually put in those hours? And can we lead this conversation into the whole stigma against uh, playing so many games and how that's almost detrimental? I guess. Uh, I think. I think because we, you know, as esports, as a, a career, um, is becoming more popular, you know, I, I, I think esports itself will, will be seen more as a viable career path. Um, you, know, mu you know, much as like being a professional, you know, like, like NBA or NFL player has been, um, you know, uh, when we look at, you know, countries like South Korea that, ha that have had very established esports scenes being you know like dropping out of school and becoming a professional esports player is not necessarily the most outlandish thing at least compared to how we view it you know in the united states and so i think you know as it becomes more popular as esports becomes more established in our culture you know like societally um yeah i could definitely see um you know dropping you know you know focusing all of your time onto becoming a professional esports player becoming more and more of a um of a viable career path uh, for, you know, aspiring uh, teenagers, teenagers and young adults. 
Yeah, I definitely think that, you know, the more respect that, you know, esports organizations, just esports as a whole gets, the more, you know, of a possibility it seems for people, you know, to kind of go into that field of work. And I think what we've seen in the past, you know, a couple of months, couple of years is that esports has been taking off. Like we see, you know, specifically brought up the Overwatch League and last year when they had their Overwatch League final, you know, the teams are playing in the Wells Fargo Stadium in Philadelphia to this huge crowd. I mean, look at this. I mean, you know, to be a player in that situation, you know, you're playing you're playing video games in front of, you know, thousands of people who are watching. I think that's definitely, you know, a, it must be a surreal moment for those players. But I think even for the people watching at home to realize that something you're so interested, you know, something that people have may not have supported for a long time is, you know, finally getting that mainstream coverage. You know, people are starting to say, you know, this is interesting. This is something I like. It has that relatability aspect. I think that's a huge deal for esports. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, I know, like, Jaden, uh, when it comes to esports, his uh, go-to is the Overwatch League. But even, you know, even Overwatch, which is, you know, it, it's a pretty established game, comparing that to, like, the League of Legends Grand Finals, League of Legends arguably being the biggest um, esports game ever, as of right now, at least. Um, you know, looking at, like, the Grand Finals uh, for, League, for League of Legends, like, enti the entire stadium completely sold out like millions of people watching both in person and online a huge prize pool it's definitely starting to look like you know as we said before it's starting to resemble you know what we, you know real sports as we would say and uh you know and as we uh you know as we talked about the more the more um you know popular and um and grounded it gets the more we can we'll, we'll see it rise and I, I i almost see this kind of like this like uh, cyclical increase in you know as esports becomes more popular, more people will get into it, and they'll become you know more popular. And this this almost kind of like cycle of you know exponential increase in popularity. And I think that's what we're going towards, where just more and more people are starting to see esports as a as a as a you know a real kind of substantive you know form form of entertainment. And I really think that it's going to be you know taking over not not necessarily. Uh, replacing or taking over conventional sports, but really, you know, uh, going, you know, head to head in when it comes to viewership ratings. Uh, I, I know we to like sort of recall this previous conversation on, on uh, the viability of esports as like a, a career option almost. Uh, well, I, I agree to that to a certain extent. While it is true that in years past, comparatively, esports is far more avidly able to uh, sort of participate in in a career wise, and it. it compared to the the sort of the origins of esports or like the sort of the mainstream popularization it's a lot more viable to have a like an established career in esports but i don't think by any means we should encourage it or like i, I that that's a poor choice of words but almost how um where we're comparing it to professional sports leagues even the established professional sports leagues like the nfl the mlb the nba it's not something that we um sort of drop out of school to be a part of because regardless of um almost the, the the availability and the like the establishment of the organization itself it's still a difficult thing to be a part of and a difficult thing to sort of maintain your status in and obviously like if you're if you're gifted in gaming and it's something that like you've already proven and i think it's a lot e more easier to prove if you're on twitch and if you're on mixer and all these other streaming platforms where you have the like the noticeable skill to be a part of these sort of 
leagues, only in those cases I, I, I necessarily encourage it. But I, I, I don't think it's as viable of a career option as we're sort of saying it is right now. I'm going to have to, you know, kind of both agree and disagree with you here. Um, I do think that, you know, if you are interested in esports or even in like a career that, you know, revolves around gaming or something like that i definitely think that if you're interested and you know you are able to put the work into it you should definitely go for it like there should you know be nothing stopping you from you know getting the career that you want but at the same time i think it's also important to put into perspective that similar to like armand said similar to conventional sports it isn't necessarily going to be easy to you know to get into these esports leagues and, and you know be recognized but Again, I, just because it's something is difficult, I still don't think you know it should stop you. I think you should you know try you know put effort and put work into it. But a little bit of what Armand said, don't you know throw don't don't put yeah don't put everything on the line for this because it's not that you can't do it right because as long as you believe in yourself, you can do anything. But the same thing that you know they've been telling kids in PE um, about conventional sports is that there is you know a small chance that you make it into something like this, right? But if you put the work in, you can do it. But don't let yourself get carried away. And, and on that point, on the point of like dropping out of school, um, you know, uh, I think you know when it comes to you know the the concerns about people dropping out of school and going into esports, um, I think. Because, like, if you're like a football player, right? You know, you're you're a, you're a high school football player. You have the you like the, the there are ways for you to balance, you know, being a you know football player in high school and going to college and then and then the NFL because the schools have a a direct program for that activity. You know, most schools, as of right now, at least, don't have that for esports. And then, but however, we are seeing more collegiate esports teams. Um, I, I, I personally, I know someone who plays for the Overwatch team at his, at his college. Um, so, you know, as we see more, you know, academic organizations like high schools, like, uh, colleges, you know, invest in their own esports teams and I, this, this, this concern about people dropping out of high school to join, you know, the, the, the esports scene isn't going to be really concerned anymore because there's going to be programs that, that their high schools and colleges have in place similarly to how they have in place for, you know, you know, uh, like conventional athletics. Um, those programs will be in place to support uh, these, um, these, you know, rising stars in the esports scene. And another thing I want to point out when we talk about the comparison between professional and even collegiate sports uh, comparatively to esports, I think uh, hands down, I don't want to say easier, but I feel like there's a lot more availability for esports because um, in in conventional sports, there there's a sort of requirement beyond work ethic. Because in esports, if you put in the hours, if you put in the time and the effort to be good, you will be good. But in in conventional sports, you have the whole other aspect of being fit and being um, like tall or be a certain weight or, or things that are a lot more difficult and or sort of impossible to control because. If, if, if you have like hypothetically like sort of like a, a five foot five kid who's puts in hours and hours a day to be good at football or basketball, they'll never be as good as the completely fit like seven foot athletes regardless of the time. And that's not as true for esports because uh, you, it doesn't, your, your, your actual like physique doesn't play an impact if you're excluding thumbs, I guess. <laughs> well, <laughs> um, 
to that point, I mean, like, you know, for conventional sports, I definitely do think, you know, that, you know, for things like they look at, you know, the way you are built as a person, you know, when deciding to put you in conventional sports. But at the same time, I don't think it's fair to say that someone who may not be as tall or as strong as someone else doesn't have, you know, still a fair shot to, as long as they put in the work, I think it's, they still do have that fair shot to, you know, do whatever conventional sports they want to do. And this, I think the same goes for esports as well, where, you know, it is a lot of practice, but there are definitely other, you know, factors that go into it, right? And I think as long as, you know, for both, as long as you put in the work to do it, I think it's still possible. But I kind of want to move the conversation in a different direction here. Um, I kind of wanted to talk about, you know, the availability to esports. You know, we like Evan said, we see collegiate esports being more of a thing. You know, um, high schools often have, you know, esports clubs and stuff like that. Um, talk about, you know, your how you feel about, you know, the spread of esports, but also what you kind of look forward to going in the future. I think it's awesome that we're putting uh, hot, like or more of an emphasis or at least the beginnings of an emphasis on collegiate and high school esports because frankly previously to this notion we were missing a whole dynamic of athletes and talented individuals who are very good at at video gaming and um, can build potential careers on it or sort of I, I, I like again I don't want to contradict myself to my previous point but again careers building around video gaming, maybe not necessarily being professional video gamers, but, or more hobbies or more availability to different talents that talents that individuals can hone in on. And I feel like an emphasis on the availability of it in college or high school is the key step to doing so. Yeah. Uh, personally, I'm looking forward um, to seeing, you know, the, I would argue inevitable rise or uh, continuous rise, I would say even of, uh, of the esports scene. You know, I've, you know, as, as, as I, you know, briefly mentioned earlier, I've been uh, a viewer of, you know, various esports scenes since middle school, really. And so, um, you know, seeing it, you know, continuously increasing popularity, continuously increasing in viewership, continuously increasing in even, you know, the amount of funding uh, for certain esports scenes. And then also as we see um, even uh, more niche and um, or underground scenes flourish into these these like you know these much more popular um you know games i you know, i'm i'm 100% looking forward to it uh, i really you know can't wait to see um esports almost uh <clears throat> take on conventional sports as the uh, premier form of entertainment uh so yeah i am 100% looking forward to it i yeah i agree with both of you honestly um i think what's you know most appealing and most interesting about the spread of esports is just like, you know, we see with conventional sports where you have teams, you know, based on divisions and locations, we see pretty similar things for esports. Like in Overwatch, you're going to have teams based on different cities, you know, not just in the US, but, you know, globally. Same thing for things like Call of Duty. Like there are so many appeals to be like conventional sports that esports makes. And it's not like they're, you know, trying to idolize and be exactly like conventional sports but i think they do a really good job of taking the things that conventional sports do well and applying it to esports and i think you know just the ability to support a team that may has a logo that you like or maybe from a city that you're from or even a city that you like is really promising for the future of esports well when we speak about this continuous rise of esports in your guys's opinion coming from me who is uh fairly unknowledgeable about the spread of esports and sort of the mainstream popularization, do you think that it's almost going to plateau into how it is right now and 
sort of stay that way in terms of just having like uh, an Overwatch League or a League of Legends League? Or do you think it can go as far as have potentially having esports in the Olympics, possibly? Um, <laughs> I don't think an esports Olympics is necessarily the most uh, realistic thing. Um, but um, you know, as Jim was talking about, you know, we see kind we see um, esports scenes almost emulating that same kind of franchise aspect of conventional sports. You know, he brought up you know brought, he brought up the Overwatch League, which um, I think one of the uh, one of the strong suits of the Overwatch League is you know the franchises how we have teams based on you know like we have the NYXL who are in, you know who are in, you know like the New York Yankees of you know the Overwatch League. We even have you know like like um the Boston team you know Boston Uprising. Uh, where you know um, the um, New England Patriots, or you know where they were, you know talking, they were they were like tweeting about, um, you know, you know their their fellow Boston s sports teams. So yeah, I think you know that kind of the uh, that franchise aspect, you know, it grounds, it it, it kind of provides like a, a frame of reference for people getting into the esports scene. You know where they can compare it to conventional sports, where it's like, oh yeah, you know, I'm from I'm from New York. I like the Yankees. You know, the NYXL, they're, they're the Overwatch New York team. I'm gonna I'm gonna root for them. It gives somebody a very you know, simple like frame of reference. I think that really aids in the um and in, in, in you know in the popularity of you know or, you know the the uh, esports scenes that do that. But in terms of you know, will we see uh uh like a like an even comparison between um, conventional sports and esports, uh, I you know I really think so. I think you know if we if if more team if more scenes moved in, into that kind of like franchise, um, that that franchise team aspect, similarly to how the Overwatch League and other Activision esports scenes have done it, um, you know of course if they're able to, um, obviously with like the uh, the fighting game community, there really isn't a team aspect. It's mostly individuals. But you know what what, what if there can be? I really think that those team based um, Esports scenes that can have those franchise aspects similar to conventional sports will really uh, come to come to dominate um, the es like just the esports scenes in general, and then I really think that will you know hold a candle to um, conventional sports entertainment, show you know eventually leading to similar uh, viewership rates at least how I see it. So to answer your question about you know the possibility of you know an esports addition to the Olympics, I think you know that really depends on what your definition of the Olympics is, right? Um, I think if we're talking about you know will esports be added on to the pre-existing Olympics, I'm not so sure about that. But you know in terms of like a global competition between you know lots of you know uh, countries and lots of different regions of the world, I. I think that definitely is something that's going to happen in the future, but, you know, even now we do see stuff like that happening, and I think, again, the best example of this would be, you know, the Overwatch League, where you're going to have teams based in North America, but you also have teams, you know, based in Europe, you have teams based in, you know, Asia, you have teams based in South Korea, China, you have a lot of that, you know, a lot of regions from different places across the globe. So in essence, you know, you have that global competition, which, you know, is to a very high degree similar to the olympics now i think this like evan said this is a really strong appeal you know to have these franchises and stuff like that so my hope and i think definitely what we're seeing the pattern now is esports is probably going to continue to grow to even like evan said rival the likes of conventional sports because again it takes i think it takes what conventional sports does well 
but it's so different that it's taking what they do well but putting on to what they already do well i just have a quick disagreement to Jaden and evan's last claim and i know they're already prepared to rebuttal me on this though i'm going to say it anyways i know we spoke about although uh esports does have this continuous and expanding mobility i personally don't seeing it rival the likenesses of many uh, professional and conventional sports not to say that esports isn't professional wrong choice of words i apologize but I, I hear Evan speaking about the comparison between the New York Yankees and the NYXL. That seems a little ambiguous to me. I, I don't see something of that sort of mobility occurring solely because of the history and legacy behind very famous teams like the New York Yankees. I, I just don't think, um, at least in the, the, the soon times, that we'll see um, uh, the NYXL or other famous uh, esports teams to build that sort of legacy and that credibility and that history that all these other uh, sports like uh, sports teams have that will give it that credibility to stand on that like um, that, that that hierarchy of sort of importance I want to say or relevance is a better use of words well well to follow up um, I want to first uh, I want to I want to first um, not necessarily backtrack, but you know, Jaden, you, ch you, ch you changed my mind. Um, actually, you know, on, on further reflection, I think an, uh, an esports Olympics might actually be a feasible thing we see in the future. You know, just because, like, you know, compare, like, just off the basis of how of what we see with like the Overwatch World Cup and like the League and like the League of Legends, like uh, uh, World Cup, I, I believe as well. Um, I, you know, I, I can actually see you know different countries. Uh, having their own individual esports teams that they present to an almost esports Olympics, um, which you know, that would be uh, pretty exciting to see as an esports fan uh, myself. But to, to to respond to what Armand was saying, um, honestly, just give it time. Uh, you know, esports is still pretty is still a relatively new and fresh um, thing, especially when comparing it to conventional sports. I mean, the MLB has been going on for what like 80 plus years i i don't know the fine details nfl is what was that i couldn't even tell you how yeah years. i mean mlb is a very you know baseball itself is a very well established um sport and you know the mlb has been going on for a long time same with the nfl same with the nba you know these 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 um i guess you could say conventional sport scenes um are very well established and then in you know in, in the future when we see you know these more established esports scenes i can definitely see them um Arrival in conventional sports. I mean, even because like when we look at you know the most well-established esports scene, you know that being League of Legends, um, their viewership definitely rivals, uh, you know the um, the current conventional sports scene that, that we see right now. Um, I would have to. I mean, someone can fact-check me in the comments, but correct me if I'm wrong. I'm pretty sure the 2019 Grand Finals um, had more had had a had a similar. Uh, viewership rating to the NBA Grand Finals. Um, the NBA not, I, Grand Finals. I'm not. I'm not sure how how exactly accurate that is. It, I might be. I might be completely off. Um, but you know, you can correct me if I'm wrong in the comments. You can call me dumb. I can take it. It's fine. <laughs> um, but you know, as I was saying, when we get these more established, you know, when we when we have you know more established scenes scenes over time, you know, give it that same uh, that that same time frame, and I can definitely see um, esports contending viewership rating wise with um conventional uh like uh, physical sports 
Yeah, I still do agree with Evan here. I think his, you know, example of uh, the Yankees and the NYXL is very, it's a very quintessential one where it definitely shows that, again, esports is very new and in time, I think you could see this type of fan base, this type of support for, you know, these local regional teams that you'll see, you know, with the New York Yankees, right? The New York Knicks, the New, the New, the New York Nets, right? All, all, all New York teams, the Brooklyn Nets, yes. Um, but I do think that, you know, a team like the New York Excelsior, they have that same, you know, regional appeal that conventional sports has. So in time, I think you could see, you know, these legacies being built and the support for esports growing. Agree to disagree. I think the, the, the time frame you're looking at is a lot, uh, longer than, uh, the, the continuous rise of esports seems to be in terms of viewership, but I guess we'll leave it there. Yeah, I think that's a great place to leave the conversation, but also a great place to pick a new one up. We are so excited to bring and announce our guest for this episode to help us talk a little bit more about his experience working as a caster for the Overwatch League, but also his experience with esports in general. We're so happy to bring on Mr. Mitch Uber-Leslie. Uh, thank you, Jaden. I am so happy to have the honor uh, to introduce play-by-play uh, -play commentator, uh, three-year Overwatch League caster, and surprisingly, a man with a phobia of cotton balls, Mr. Mitch Uber-Leslie. Thank you for joining us on the Gradient Podcast. Guys, thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's the, the texture of cotton balls. They're, they're too soft. They make me shiver when I touch them. I can't really explain it. Yeah, it's just one of those weird things. Glad to be here. Yes, I'm sure there are many people who can, who can relate to that. Um, but to start it off with our first question, um, growing up, did you know that you wanted to get into esports as a career? And then, you know, following your, uh, your uh, going into esports, what was the reaction from your parents and like families and friends? And when, when, you, when you made this decision? So I didn't know you could even have a job in esports growing up, right? I grew up in the countryside um, for from like age 10 to 16 is when I, went, when I went to school. So I barely had the internet, fam. We're on dial-up out there. And I, I knew that my computer time for the day was over when mum would come downstairs and just rip out the, the dial-up cable. And I would just I'd disconnect from the game I was in. So no, I mean, I, look, I was pretty good with books and academia and not with people. So I, you know, my studies went fairly well, but I was pretty, uh, pretty nerdy, pretty uh, sort of outcast kind of kid growing up. Um, I, I went to university to study aerospace engineering, but that didn't really pan out. It turns out that actually the timing wasn't great for me. Um, I, yeah, there weren't a lot of jobs that in that field in Australia. And esports was actually something that I fell into more by luck than anything else because I started later than a lot of other people, a lot of other gamers, right? I didn't start playing competitive video games until I was 17 or so, because I was I was in the countryside, you know, it just wasn't an option. So yeah, I um, that was a late bloomer in that regard. Uh, and I guess it, a lot of things just happened in just the right way to get me to where I am now in, in, a, in an esports casting job. And then, you know, when you, uh, when you finally became a caster, what were the reactions from, you know, your family, your, your loved ones, or your family and friends? Well, the first time it became real for me, it wasn't just like, hey, mom, yeah, I'm going to be in my bedroom a couple nights a week casting uh, and I'm going to get paid. So no worries. It was actually, hey, mom, in two weeks, I'm going to pack my bags and I'm, I'm actually going to Germany to, to be a caster. And she's like, you what? <laughs> and I had to show her the contract to sort of prove. 
and, and like that that I was going to get paid the, the salary. Like it wasn't a huge salary, right? It wasn't like you know, a pro player gets signed by NRG and you know they're a god and they get a million dollars. It was, but it was a livable salary. Um, and I had to definitely show her that to prove that her firstborn son leaving the country to live in Europe was legitimate at all. So it took some convincing, but I'd been I'd done a little bit of esports. I'd done some events. She'd seen proof that there was some kind of legitimacy to what I was doing before that. I think it definitely came as a shock, but my parents are always supportive, uh, and she's just like, "All right, then go on, don't get yourself killed, but go to go uh, go have fun overseas." Basically, that's awesome. Uh, more of a lead-in from the last questions. When did you more specifically get into Overwatch, and how and when did you know you wanted to become a caster? So they're obviously pretty separate. Those two things. Um, I have been casting now for about nine years. Uh, six years of that has been as a professional. I've only spent, you know, four, five of those as an Overwatch caster. Uh, so I, I knew I was a competitive Call of Duty Four player, right? So we're, we're going back a fair way now. This was a game that was being played competitively between 2007 and 2009, so a long time ago now. Um, and I was a sort of I played pro mod. It was basically a community created mod that took all the really unbalanced stuff out of Call of Duty. Uh, I think the franchise could definitely use that these days because it's getting out of hand again, but. Uh, I was the top. I was, I was like a, I was like a bad player on a really good team, if that makes sense. They kept me around because I was quite a good shot caller and captain. But when it came to the mechanical side of the game, I was a little bit weaker. So I, I had to go to uni, um, and my parents didn't want me scrimming forty hours a week of Call of Duty, which is what I was doing at the time. That's what it required to even be competitive at that early stage in like '09, where there was like no money on the line. But we did it because we loved it, right? So. I wanted to be involved still in the scene. I loved the, I called you friends. I was interested in the games, the teams that would rise up. Um, so I, I took a chance and I started helping a friend do radio broadcasts for these Call of Duty games. So that meant I could be involved a couple nights a week, but still be able to study at the same time. But I would be, it was, there was no, you guys wouldn't be able to see the, the video, right? It was all radio casting back then because Australia's internet is still prehistoric, but back then you couldn't up, you could barely upload sound, right? <laughs> now it's like five megasecond uploads. You can almost stream okay-ish out there. That's kind of how bad the infrastructure is. Um, so radio casting as a side gig so I could stay involved. And I didn't realize for a few years that that was actually something that could be a career that society would put a value on that kind of uh, skill set. That was before I started going to uni. So I did uni and then I did two years working in like a, a CVS, like a pharmacy because I couldn't find an engineering job, right? So six years in between me starting as a hobby and actually realizing it could be a career. So, oh, like wow. you said, you've been, you know, casting for the past nine years, but, you know, specifically with your, the last three years you've worked with the Overwatch League, what mm -hmm. did your daily life as a caster look like? So, there's two, like, there's a two, three distinct eras, actually, with the Overwatch League based on the league structure, right? If you remember, year one, we were based in the Blizzard Arena in Burbank, uh, in Los Angeles, right? So, we would, uh, you know, be there, what is it, four days a week? Yeah, with, with games, right, in the first season. So a lot of the time, um, myself and Mr. Rex, we used to live in the same apartment complex. Uh, so I would, he would drive me because I, I don't drive in the US or, uh, you know, because we drive on the other side of the road. So I have to go through all the licensing stuff again. We'd, I, I'd get up at, you know, 8 a.m. or whatever, get in the car with Matt. We'd go get Starbucks. We'd just talk about Overwatch. We'd just hang out. Um, and then we'd get to work. There'd be four games on that day, probably. We might be casting one or two of them. So we would get into work, we'd 
first of all, go to what I go to my office or our office. We had like a big room where all the cast is room, which got so loud, but it was fun. And we would sit there and we'd look at the matchups of the day, the games we were casting, start to develop some storylines. We'd talk a lot with the analyst desk because uh, they'd obviously be on in between the games and they kind of set the tone. And we would, you know, want to try and piggyback off the kind of stuff that they established and have a cohesive narrative. And then, yeah, I'd get out there, I'd cast the games. And when my games are done, maybe I'd leave early, but more more likely I'd go get some crew lunch to have like a catering room for everybody. And I'd go sit in the crowd and interact and hang out. So that's four days a week. And then usually the other, I would say there was an extra day of prep or like self-review or we, I'd be watching like the, the Korea games that were going on. Like I'd be watching uh, the Apex games or what it just so I you know, didn't get blindsided by not knowing any matchups or players that come out of nowhere. So yeah, and then so it'd be like 8 a.m. I mean, some days we'd start a little bit later. We'd get to the arena at 12, but it, it'd be like a 10 hour day at the arena. Fast forward to this year, was homestands so we would actually sort of the the two days before we'd fly out there we'd have a day on site before uh you know the game started where we'd we'd get there you know we'd have a tech check a rehearsal make sure everything's working make sure my my screen in my caster booth is the right height because obviously like if you're standing there for hours like you can get a really sore neck like make sure my headset's working properly that i'm happy and then we talk with pro the producers about how the show's going to go and maybe there's like a sponsorship thing that I have to read out, right? Maybe like IBM is sponsoring the Philadelphia homestand and I've got to, you know, make sure that I mention IBM a bunch or, or you know, or whatever. And then, yeah, we, we, you know, that'd be the day one. Then we'd have the next day, which we'd be casting. We turn up nice and early, we sat in the green room. We might go hang out in the crowd uh, and then cast. And, and yeah, we'd uh, the day after. So like I'd cast two days in a row and then we'd head home the next day normally. And then we'd recover for like the next trip. Sometimes it was the same week or like the, the very next weekend. Sometimes it was every other week we got a break. Now in the, in this setup, the home office setup, it's a little bit different, right? We have all of our meetings on Zoom and stuff like that. But my, my day consists of getting up, you know, in my pajama bottoms and maybe I look like I put my casting shirt on. So, you know, people, I look somewhat professional when I'm working sit at my desk like I am now and make sure the lights work and the camera's working, make sure my connection to the server is working so that my camera and, and mic can get synced up because uh, a new challenge with uh, remote broadcast is to make sure that my audio is in sync with Matt's audio is in sync with the game sounds. Uh, so, so I'm not calling things that happened a second ago or I'm not ahead of the broadcast. So there's like a ton of stuff that had to be done to sync all that stuff up. And then, yeah, everything outside, outside of that, it was like a, you know, streaming from home, basically. But three different ways it's looked since the, uh, the Overwatch League has been in three different phases. So you kind of talked about it, you know, briefly, but COVID, it came as a shock to many this year, and it changed the way that a lot of people live their lives. So how do you feel that esports organizations, you know, Activision, Blizzard, as well as others have adapted to COVID? And how has that affected your work with casting, as you mentioned before? So the, the, the most important thing that you want to try and do when you move from like an events-based setup to an online one is to try and maintain the quality of broadcast, right? You still want to have player interviews. So we had to set up a way to pipe players audio in and, and have them in a, a discord channel or something so that like Zoe or Custer or Reinforce or one of our analysts could interview them after the game. Uh, we had to make sure that, you know, everyone had the same backdrop. You know, we tried to make sure the elements of the broadcast can look as polished as possible. 
And if you followed the hour this year, you would have seen like there were definitely technical glitches and stuff, like problems with getting it set up. Like um, some of the casters live in the same house. That house has bad internet. So if there's two casters live in the house or if someone's streaming in that house and then someone's trying to cast, their feed just doesn't work. We, we use three different types of software to try and get it so that um, everybody, producers, directors, graphics people, replay people, observers, casters, managers, coaches, everybody could be at home and still kind of have the same ability to do their job as beforehand. So it took ages to just like get to the the same level. I mean, as much as possible, right? And then there's, um, you know, a whole host of other challenges. Like, okay, well, how do we, how do we, you know, bring that magic that we had at like our big, you know, homestand events or our land events. Like how do we try and emulate the how awesome it feels to be in a live venue? And frankly, you, you, you can't, you actually, and maybe that's why doing those in-person events is so special because you, you can't replicate that, right? But you do everything you can to make sure the broadcast is really polished and has, you know, we have behind the scenes features and, you know, we, we get player interviews and we do all this stuff because, you know, we just want to go further and further uh, to, to really make sure that people isolated around the world can still feel like they can relate to their favorite players and that they're involved and that even though we're all sat at our desks, we're all sort of experiencing these games in this league in this season and all the ups and downs of it together. And to do that, you have to go a bit further in terms of, you know, churning out content and making sure that everyone is accessible and, and everyone feels involved. So... I don't know how they did it. I'm not a tech guy, you know. I, I, I know how to put a computer together and I had to sit in front of a microphone and talk. But when it comes to putting on that kind of show, that was incredible work from the producers and the, and the, the people higher up and the all-nighters that they pulled to get us a show at all was, uh, was something I'm pretty impressed by, I have to say. I agree with you there. As someone who doesn't really do much on the technical aspect of this podcast, I am so appreciative of the other two. But anyways, um, I'm going to go a little off script with this question because it's something that I feel like really ha we haven't prepped for and brought up. But mm -hmm. uh, as someone who is an avid viewer of more conventional sports, there are so many instances of very historic plays and historic moments in the sport. Have you covered any of those like gigantic generational changing plays in the Overwatch League? And can you walk us through one of them? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think there are probably a couple that I've been lucky enough to preside over. I think probably, you know... The, the most obvious of those would be the moments where we crown our champions uh, of the Overwatch League, right? So I've, uh, I've been uh, lucky enough to cover the, the grand final of each of our seasons. In season one, I did half of the grand final because it was split over two days. But um, I would say that it would have been uh, a season two grand finals where uh, it wasn't even a close match, really, uh, as it really is. But when San Francisco Shock managed to uh, overcome the Vancouver Titans in a game that was hyped up a lot, but it didn't end up being very close. Regardless, um, it was still a very important moment because the San Francisco, this San Francisco team had a really weak first season because they actually invested a lot of their their money in players that weren't eligible to play until halfway through the season, young guys, right? They had to be 18. So they like, they basically forewent a strong first season in order to have like a dynasty developed with the, the incredible talent they managed to pick up, you know, young before anyone else could get them. So they beat the Vancouver Titans who were supposed to be like the boogeyman of the, the league. They were like the, the strongest team. They were from South Korea, uh, which is where all the best games are supposed to come from. Everyone expected them to just dominate. And they did. They, they honestly did. The only team that really stood up to them was San Francisco. So the story, or crafting the story through this grand final, was that 
you are dealing with the Vancouver Titans, who everyone expected to be the very best, and they almost were. There was an element of David and Goliath to the story. And when San Francisco finally won, it was not close. So we had to sort of, you know, we couldn't be talking about David and Goliath anymore because Vancouver just got smashed by San Francisco. So we had to really pivot to, you know, San Francisco, the idea that they invested, they took a season off. You know, the first season of the Overwatch League, when all the hype was there, they just got pooed on. You know, they were not a strong team. Their fans were very critical of them. Everyone said, why are you doing this? The players got a lot of hate. So... In that moment when they lifted the trophy, trying to find the right words to encapsulate the journey that this team had actually made between starting off in the league with so much uncertainty to triumphing at the end of season two, to find the right words, and not just all the words, the right small number of words that really captured what you know they, they did was important. And I only had so much time. So I said, uh, uh, the, the, so San Francisco had won. Uh, we, we split the league up into stages, right? So it's like, you know, 10, 10 games a stage. And if, if you win every map, match in a certain stage, there's four stages, then we call it a golden stage. So when San Francisco won, I said, you know, um, a golden state, a golden stage, and now finally a golden crown. San Francisco shot off your, you know, your, your champions, right? So, you know, I had to find something that wasn't just me waffling like I am now. I only had uh, one or two sentences to work with, but I wanted to infuse that moment with uh, all of the trials and tribulations that they'd faced, even if I couldn't sort of recite them word for word. So definitely a very powerful moment for me. Crowds going nuts. We're in the Wells Fargo Center in Philadelphia. It is packed to the rafters. Couldn't have asked for a more powerful moment than that for sure. Wow. So when many people, when you know, when many people think of esports, they think of the players and you know, not always the people behind the scenes. So what would you want people to know about you know, these people who are arguably as important, sometimes even more important, behind the scenes working on esports? Sure. I mean, I think, as far as I'm concerned, that the players are the most important part of the show to me in terms of where the spotlight should be. Like we, you know, like the the. The people behind the scenes don't want the spotlight. They, they, they want to be a part of creating those moments. But I think a lot of people definitely take for granted what a smooth broadcast can look like, especially in a transition to um, to an online format. I tell you, I've heard producers. In fact, I live with one. My partner is a producer at the Overwatch League, and she sounds like she's casting when she's running the show. Uh, it, it takes a lot of effort. She has to coordinate a lot of different people that bring a lot of different elements together, right? Graphics, replay, person switching the scenes, the camera angles, all of that, like talking with the, the, the players or the people who are responsible for wrangling the players. Are they on stage? Are they ready to walk out? All this kind of stuff. It's, um, it's almost like a concert in itself behind the actual concert, right? So I think people take a little bit of a simplified view of it sometimes. I just, if I could, if I could impart any knowledge to them at all, I would say that, you know, it's a field full of professionals that put in a lot of extra hours and very rarely get the accolades for doing so. I get to sit out there soak up uh you know a little bit of uh, a spotlight here and there but uh, i i don't work nearly as hard as these people you know these people are the hardest working ones on the show for sure so something a bit unique to over to the overwatch league is the addition of homestands you know that we had in you know season one and two and, and into season three but unfortunately with covid that obviously didn't work out oh. so you know, with, with homestands and getting to travel for the Overwatch League finals, were there any moments to you that stood out as almost surreal? Um, 
Yeah, I, I actually think so. I think that uh, being in Washington was quite an experience because this was um, Washington was an expansion team added in the second season that honestly didn't play very well. Their team was just kind of booty cheeks. You know, they, they come out the gates, had sort of middling performances. The players weren't really compelling personalities. You know, it was really hard to get a read on what, what this team was. Matt, I get to the homestand this year and the place is packed with locals, people there to see the Justice play. And I'm like, this is actually wild because it was, it was what helped me understand that like an endemic gamer, a lot of endemic gamers were like, who cares if these teams are named after places? Like why does tying an esports brand to a location matter? It's all online anyway. Obviously, like maybe like Armand, like a tradition, the traditional sports enthusiast is going to understand why that's important and why so many people get around that. But gamers didn't get it, right? So a lot of people was like, I mean, no one's going to turn up to the Justice because they're, they're just not very good. And Mate, place was packed. Everyone was there with Washington Justice t-shirts. They were still bad. They were better than they were last year, but it didn't, it didn't really matter. So I think the surreal part for me was that we realized that these, these people care. That there's a pride. It's a, it's a video game team, but they represent their city or their state in some cases for some teams. And they're proud of that. No matter how booty they were last year, they still turn up this year and, and cheer them on. And that was when I kind of realized, well, wait a minute, this whole esports thing, this might have legs. You know, people, this, this might actually be something that is relevant and stays relevant in the future. Cause, man, yo, they might be out there just hitting WASD and mouse one, but it mattered to these people. And that's all that matters, you know? Yes. And uh, personally, we've seen that a lot of esports casters tend to be former competitive players. Do you think that having that competitive knowledge assists you in casting? And what experiences have helped you improving your ability to cast? So I, I, I don't have any competitive or professional experience as an Overwatch player. I would call myself pretty average. Uh, I can I can divulge that I'm a high platinum ranked player. So I fall within like the I don't know, the 30th, the 20th percentile. I mean, so like, you know, I'm within the top percentage, but uh, still a big one. There's a lot of players that sort of dominate. I got ruined by, I get ruined by people of all ages and the regular and the latter. So as a play-by-play -play commentator, the most important thing you can do is to set up your color commentator, right? Or your your expert, you know, like the, I guess the, um, the Aikman to the Buck, right? So I, I'm Joe Buck in this scenario as a play-by-play -play commentator. And then my, my co-commentator, Matthew, uh, who was an ex-pro player in Call of Duty, not in Overwatch, but his focus is more on the analytical, technical side of Overwatch. He's my Aikman, right? So my job is to make sure that he has opportunities to delve deep into some of the finer points, the strategy, the tactics, the history uh, of the game without me just going over the top of him with, you know, idioms or, you know, isms that don't really matter. So if you're a color commentator, uh, I think having professional or high level competitive experience is important, but there are plenty of NFL commentators that were players that are terrible at commentating, right? They know the game, they cannot convey anything about it because they lack technique as a broadcaster. Uh, I would rather work with a color commentator who was very solid in broadcast technique and had spent more time focusing on the mechanics of a broadcast than on the game. Now. I would still expect them to be able to hold their own in a conversation about the finer points and be an expert because that had to be my expert. My job is to, to set them up to say smart things, right? Or to allow them to spend time building this concept up for a viewer to explain to them, like, you know, why in Overwatch, for example, 
the enemy team is using a hero that maybe is is less popular but suits a player specifically better or why their strategy and why they're employing this strategy or doing something different so there's tons of opportunities for that in overwatch um there will be players and there are players in overwatch who have transitioned from being a player to being a commentator and they do bring something that you can't really emulate if you weren't a pro player uh, so one of our color commentators, uh, Jake, was uh, a player for the Houston Outlaws. Not a team that was ever really dominant in, in you know, the grand scheme of the Overwatch League rankings, but he himself, very clever individual, and he's able to offer insight as a pro player that uh, you, you, you can't necessarily get. He offers something distinct and unique, but it's not the be-all and end-all, if that makes sense. It helps set him apart, uh, but it's not a, a, a baseline requirement, I would say for someone to step into my commentary booth, as it were. So for many teams, getting to work on and even work with video games is kind of like a dream come true scenario. So what advice would you give to teams who want to have this position in esports? Yeah, I think that the, the trick is, is to, you have to be reasonable about the way you approach sort of gainful employment in esports because the reality of the situation is the opportunities are fairly scarce. Um, if you want to make it as a commentator or as a player, I mean, there has to be a lot of hard work for very little gain initially, right? There is there is a huge investment and there's definitely a sense of delayed gratification about it, right? Esports is not at the point where you can just go and get a esports degree at college and then get an esports job and, and you're on your way. You know, for me, um, I was commentating esports as a hobby before I knew that it, it would even ever be potentially a job. So... It just so happened that that was something I enjoyed, which is just as well, because I, I had to have that enjoyment for esports to spend the next nine years not getting paid for, for commentating it and being able to stay, you know, interested and motivated enough to improve. So I would really encourage people that want to get involved in esports, first treat it as a hobby, okay? Try not to expect to be able to, you know, to make money out of it get it get a job slash education or whatever but like there's something that i did on the side right I, I was studying engineering now did i go into an engineering field i did for six months i just didn't really enjoy it but i then i stopped doing that but to be able to support myself while working these random esports gigs every now and then for like no money i worked in a cvs for two to three years you know what i mean uh it's it, it's pretty hard at the amateur level to sustain yourself from from esports there are only a small pit bracket of people that can do it as managers social media managers coaches players broadcasters producers all that stuff there's an element of uh, a, a, an apprenticeship where you just better hope to have another source of income and that you can do this as a passion project to get yourself into a position where you can legitimize it and then make it into a job i would say the proportion of people that can jump straight into gainful employment in esports is in the vast minority. I would just caution people while encouraging them to keep fostering that passion, that love of games and, and competition in esports. Um, just look after yourself in the meantime, otherwise you won't make it, you know, to the point where you have passion left over as a professional. Uh, I have a quick follow-up before we go on the next one. Um, so uh, the, the previous portion of this episode, we spoke very heavily on the sustainability of a career in esports, uh, both now and in the future, considering the the progressive and continuous like expansion yeah. of its like credibility. Uh, how credible or uh, viable do you think a career in esports is now, uh, comparatively to your thoughts in the future of how it might be? And um, then this is uh, beyond just like Overwatch and like League of Legends. I'm talking like 
EA games as well as something mm-hmm. that I play a little bit. So I think that, you know, what what counts as a career in esports, that, that definition will begin to expand. I think that um, as the industry grows, the revenues are already extremely good, right? The, the, the esports has outgrossed Hollywood uh, in total for really? quite a few years now. Yeah. Uh, wow. In terms of total total revenue. So it's not... You know that th- that sphere or that number of of jobs that make sense uh, and that are available in esports is definitely growing. Again, uh, conversely, the amount of competition, the amount of people that are aware slash interested in it, is also growing. It's no longer so so niche anymore. Um, what we are seeing now is a as it is gaming going from less of like a something that uh, poorly behaved teenage boys did in basements to actually. Uh, a legitimate way of, you know, of providing entertainment, uh, especially during this period of time that, you know, we've been experiencing a lockdown. I believe that gaming has actually become much more mainstream as, as a way of being able to, uh, you know, kill time or to enjoy oneself, you know, without, um, you know, without being able to leave the house. Animal Crossing, by the way, completely blew up. All these people that had never touched a console before, all of a sudden, uh, were building their little villages in Animal Crossing. You know, my partner who's never played the game before has spent hours <laughs> tailoring her hedges and whatnot in this game where, because there's a social aspect to it, right? And I think that's actually the, 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 one of the biggest things that will allow esports to grow is the social and lifestyle aspects of the industry. You know, especially now we're seeing that players and teams are focusing much more on, you know, wellness, uh, well-being, you know, the, these gamers are becoming influencers that now who are in a position where they are acting as role models, right? Um, contracts and salaries are becoming much more legitimized, protected by law, uh, protected by unions, <clears throat> all that sort of stuff. So it's legitimate, 100%. And there are actually more and more ways to be involved in esports than there were, right? Like it's full-time editors or, like I said, social media people. That, that, that's a job that appeared out of absolutely nowhere in the last 10 years now. It's a thing. Like... The, the person running the Wendy's Twitter account better be making absolute bank because they're geniuses. Oh, you know yeah. what I mean? Like this, this, this is not something that ever existed before him, but people are hungry to see brands engage in like an authentic way with people, right? Yeah, I want to see Wendy's and McDonald's like talk and smack to each other on Twitter. Like that, that's just, that, that's funny as heck to me, you know? So yeah, to, to answer it in, in short, it's, it's growing more and more legitimate now. Um, there will just be less of those outlier jobs where like this guy's making millions, you know, like there's, you know, there'll be less of those um, jobs where, you know, as things become a little bit more uniform and we get standardized things like standard rates, salaries, you know, job expectations, um, it'll hopefully become a little bit less wild west and there'll be less situations where people are maybe getting taken advantage of by not reading their contracts, <coughs> Fortnite players or anything like that. So um, I think the opportunities will will continue to grow, and I think I know I know that you know main major TV networks, for example, are, are are paying attention. You know, the average baseball viewer's age is fifty seven years old, right? TV networks, or sort of endemic or norm or like your regular sort of broadcast media, are failing to 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 reach eighteen to thirty five year old people, right? That is a bracket that is extremely valuable because that's a, that's us that we, we just like to spend money and we we just we just like spending money on stuff like we we're very valuable as a demographic right so how do they reach those people well they found out they, they reach those people through youtube through twitch through video games more and more 
people, I want to say our age, God, I'm like a boomer now, but people between the ages of yeah, 18 and 25 are cutting the cable cord, mate. We're Chromecasting Twitch onto the TV or watching YouTube. That's where we are. And they're trying to find out how to reach us. Esports is a huge way in which they, which they realizing now that they can. And then some final questions before, before we get into our very exciting lightning round. Uh, I wanted to ask um, about something that's a little bit more specific to the Overwatch League, and that is the, um, you know, as you talked about before, the similarly to, you know, with like conventional sports teams, like the, the franchise aspect of it, where you have teams that are, you know, rooted in, you know, New York or yep. Los Angeles or Florida, you know, and that kind of brings in that, that the native aspect, you know, for me, like living in Florida, I'm a Florida Mayhem fan because, you know, I live yep. in Florida. They're not necessarily the best team in the world. I mean, they're, they're, they, mm -hmm. they, they did pretty good this season, but, you know, that, that kind of, that franchise aspect drew me in to that team. So do you think you could see that, you know, franchise aspect um, going into other esports scenes? And do you think that has a benefit to the yeah. scene itself? I mean, it's a great question. It's also one that we're trying to answer with the Overwatch League, right? The idea of like what, what geolocation, right? There are so many, like, do people care if G2 Esports is is related to, you know, Barcelona or or not? You know, like we, we had this whole debate, right? Esports was divided because people were like, well, I don't care where Envious is based, this, this team or, you know, or, or Sentinels, like, you know, but I think if you're if you're someone who's getting involved in esports, like yeah, okay, you might not need a reason other than thinking Sinatra's a young thug to to want to watch his Valorant team play, right? Or or, or use Lavi's Twitter or or whatever. But for those people that maybe need some convincing or need a reason, like when someone walks into a scene and there's like forty different teams, and they're like, well. What, who am I supposed to support here? Like, I don't understand. Like, do I, do I, you know, it's, it's much easier, I think, to, to get people in on the ground for and engaging with like, and it also really helps local scenes, right? So in Florida, you know what I mean? Like it, it makes it much easier than just sort of unite like I, I, people from Jacksonville or from Tampa or from, you know, Miami or, or, or whatever to, you know, get out to watch parties. It actually allows us now to take what happens at, uh, you know, in esports and actually translate that into physical locations you know fan events watch parties whatever these these per these these things with purpose which is what allows teams to generate more revenue because people turn up they buy merch they want to they want to interact in real life like gaming and esports is no longer just something we do sad our pcs right we crave the social aspect of all of this of, of fandom of supporting a team and so that geolocation actually gives people points of reference in which to gather around you know those shared interests and at least in my, like, you, look, I, I guarantee you guys, if you, you can ask other sort of experts in esports and they could completely disagree. They could say, oh, this, this geolocation stuff is nonsense. It's unnecessary. You know, why do we need to try and copy other sports? But I think giving people a reason to care about something is never a bad thing, never a bad thing, you know? And if it, if it's tying someone to a location, then so be it, you know? All right, so we can go ahead and start with our lightning round. So how this is going to go, we're, uh, we have a list of some very quick uh, questions, and we're, we just kind of want to hear, you know, your off the, off the cuff, mm -hmm. off the top of your head answers. Um, and so we're trying to get this, like, you know, very quick, you know, lightning round. So first things first, uh, who is your favorite Overwatch character to play as? Uh, McCree, just because it feels good. The dink sound, bro, it's so good. So satisfying. 
Being as your nickname is Uber, are you? Do you feel obligated to take Uber, or are you more of a Lyft kind of guy? To be honest, I'm an Uber guy, but sometimes when I'm in the gym, I can't tell if I'm Uber or Lyft. You know what I mean? Maybe I'm Uber Lyfts. So, Caster Chris, is it real? No, no. People just want a reason to to explain why their team sucks. Uh, so you've been known uh, for some unique uh, color commentary uh, while casting. Is there any specific phrase that stands out to you that you are especially proud uh, of? Dude, there was one where, do you remember season one at Dallas Fuel? Uh, Chips Hine was their support player. Basically, like, I think he I think he got killed and then he got res. And I'm like, sat there like, oh, oh no, it's a, it's a mess. Chip, there's chips all over the floor. And then he gets resurrected. I'm like, ah, oh, never mind, 10 second rule. And then we just kept going with the broadcast. So I got lucky with that one. I wasn't really thinking about it. What are your thoughts on Fortnite? Uh, it, I mean, I, I, I'm just not enough of a zoomer. Like, it, it all happens too fast. I played Fortnite, right? I just can't build like that. These guys are cranking 90s. I can't keep up. I'm out there, like, literally just begging for some wood or stone, and they're building the Taj Mahal above me, and then they're dropping down and just people's elbowing me, dude. It's, I, it's too hard, man. So I think, you know, what all the fans want to know is what's your favorite part about being Australian? Um, the the fact that people think that we fight large animals and respect us for it, even if most of us just stay inside our house and avoid the venom spiders. <laughs> and then, uh, console or PC? Uh, PC, man. Oh, show. Well, Wait, uh, quickly, before we end, are there a lot of spiders and snakes in Australia? There actually are, um, but you know, you know which ones the, you, you know as a young person which ones are the deadly ones, and you never walk into like a garden shed without a torch, right? So you, you can usually see them coming, like no one's just gonna, you don't go and roll around in the, like the undergrowth and unlucky, I guess the redback bit me. So you, like, you just, it's on, it's on TV, like you learn as a kid, like what stuff not to touch, you know? Well, Uber, thank you so much for giving us the opportunity to speak with you. And thank you for helping us and all teens, you know, learn more about what you do and learn more about esports as a whole. So before you go, is there anything you'd like to say to the people watching the Gradient podcast? Ah, I just want to uh, say uh, thank you guys for having me very much. And those of you, you know, thinking about a career in esports, I really encourage you to keep following what you're passionate about. And just, just, just be sensible about it, okay? Don't put yourself in a compromising position. Look before you leap and uh, and make sure you're you're taking care of supporting yourself and well, the people you care about on the side. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you so much. It was great having you it's on. It's a wrap. We want to give a huge thank you to Uber for coming on and having such an informative discussion with us. Uh, and thank you so much for watching. We really had a lot of fun making this episode and we hope you had as much fun watching it. Before we sign off, we'd like to ask you to follow all of our socials that Evan will now repeat because I don't have them memorized. Uh, yes. You can follow our Instagram at Gradient Podcast, our Twitter also at Gradient Podcast, our Facebook page at Grad Pod. Uh, you, can, you, can, you can check out our website at um, www.itsgradient.com. Um, that should be all of them. As always, we'd like to continue with our tradition of the Gradient Q&A segment. And this one comes from at Charlene Sarazit on Instagram, who says, Jaden, I like your new glasses. And I first would like to say that's not a question, but thank you. I come too, Jaden. Thank you. Thank you. I think they're stellar. You're stellar, Armand.
Actually, they're all right. I would call them stellar though. All right, listen, you're you're both uh, you're both the worst. I, I don't know. <laughs> and I'm the one that gets off topic. Okay, two thirds. And and I still stand on that. But just thank you so much for watching our this episode of the Gradient Podcast, the Rise of Esports, or as I like to call it, the Revenge for the Return of Sports episode. Thank you so much for watching. I'm Jaden. I'm Evan. And I want to point out that Jaden spent four takes to tell that joke that was mediocre at best. I mean, I'm Armand. <laughs> Thanks for watching. You're so mean to me!